Hi, this is Susan Swain. I'm the host of C-SPAN's Q&A podcast. We're taking a few weeks break as the summer winds down and want to use this feed to introduce you to some of C-SPAN's other interesting nonfiction podcasts. Afterwards brings together best-selling nonfiction authors and influential interviewers for wide-ranging hour-long conversations. In this episode, Georgia Democrat Senator Raphael Warnock discusses his book, A Way Out of No Way. He's interviewed by Congressman James Clyburn of South Carolina, the Democratic whip of the House of Representatives. Q&A will be back with new episodes on September 11th. Well, thank you very much for uh, being here with me today and allowing me uh, to talk to you a little bit uh, about your great book uh, that I guess was released on yesterday. Uh, yeah, I understand it. And I'm particularly uh, interested in this book, uh, more so because of its title, mm. A Way Out of No Way. Yeah. Now, having been born and raised in the Parsonage, as you, uh, I don't know if you were in the Parsonage, but I'm the son of a fundamentalist minister, and, <laughs> and you PKs. also. So we kind of know a little bit about what that means. How yeah. about tell me a little bit about right. why you picked this Great. the title of your book. Great. Well, thank you so much. And uh, it's wonderful to be here uh, with you. As you point out, both of us are, are uh, what they call PKs, PK. preacher's kids. Absolutely. And um, the title of my memoir, A Way Out of No Way, is a phrase that's deep in the culture of the black church. And um, uh, let me hasten to say that when we say the black church, as you know, we have never meant anything racially exclusive about that. We're talking about the anti-slavery church. Absolutely. We're talking about the church that was literally born fighting for freedom and bearing witness to our common humanity. You're not in a black church. You're not in the churches that uh, raised and shaped me and you for, for long without hearing somebody in the midst of the service, maybe the preacher, maybe somebody in the choir, maybe a testimony mm-hmm. saying, you know, God makes a way out of no way. Yeah. And uh, it is a phrase born of suffering and oppression uh, and of keeping the faith, even when it seems like the odds are overwhelming, of hoping against hope, putting one foot in in front of the other and and moving forward, walking through the darkness, knowing that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness overcometh it not. And so the memoir reflects on the culture that that has shaped me, uh, but it's my story as an expression of the larger American story. Well, that's great, and that uh, reminds me a little bit of uh, the choice I made uh, for my memoirs that was uh, mm-hmm. uh, published seven years ago, uh, and I called it "Blessed Experiences," and it comes from my dad' uh, favorite hymn, "Blessed Assurance." Yeah. And as you just That's said, this is my story. This is my song. Right. Singing his praises all the day long. That reminds me a little bit of what I read in your book. Uh, you seem to be saying in this book that you feel uh, that you were kind of preordained for the ministry mm. uh, and the pastorate. Mm. Uh, you made some choices uh, about where to go to school based upon that preordination. Yeah. Share that with us. Yeah, it, it was pretty evident to me early on that I was headed into ministry. And although my dad, uh, bless his memory, was a pastor and my mom uh, later went into ministry, there was no pressure from them 
for me to go into ministry. I've come from a large family. I'm one of 12 children in my family. I'm number 11, first college graduate. Um, but early on, uh, I was captivated uh, by this idea of going into ministry. Um, as I point out in the book, A Way Out of No Way, in some ways it started out um, in terms of my preaching. The first time I stood in a pulpit to preach, it was on a youth Sunday. I, was, I grew up in a small church where they allowed the young people really to discover mm-hmm. their voice. Sure. And one Sunday night, uh, I have six older brothers, but the one just above me uh, dis, uh, delivered the message that Sunday on youth Sunday. And so I said, they're listening to him. <laughs> I said, uh, shucks, I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and maybe a little better. <laughs> So the next month when it was time for you Sunday to roll around, I made it clear that I wanted to deliver the sermon. And so uh, on a Sunday night, uh, a couple of months shy of my 12th birthday uh, was the first time I stood in a pulpit trying to express my faith. And as I went along, uh, my parents were great examples for me, but there was another voice that was formative for me, and, and that is the voice of Martin Luther King Jr., who absolutely captured my imagination. Um, I was born a year after Dr. King's death, um, but I was part of a, a generation of young people whose parents were fighting for his birthday to become a holiday. I'm sure you will remember that struggle. Sure. And even before it became a holiday, uh, my parents and many other parents across our, our uh, city and, and across the country pulled their kids out of school on the on the birthday and I remember sitting at the May Street YMCA all day listening to Dr. King's speeches watching uh, eyes on the prize and his voice and the way in which his faith came alive in practical ways so that people had the courage to stand up for themselves it captured my imagination I went to Morehouse College largely because that was the school Dr. King attended well, that's kind of interesting because um, uh, Dr. King had a profound impact uh, upon me as well. Yeah. Now, I was a 19-year-old college student, yeah. and when I first met Dr. King, I met him and John Lewis the same weekend, hmm. uh, back in 1960, on the campus of Mohouse College. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, as happens in movements like that, there's always some generational approaches that may not be the same. Uh, and um, there was a little disagreement that had cropped up among us students uh, and, of course, uh, SCLC. Uh, and um, we asked Dr. King to meet with us on that campus. He came to meet with us yeah. and agreed that we would get together at 10 o'clock in the evening for about an hour. Were these the SNCC students? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, I and John Lewis were founding members of SNCC. Yeah. So that meeting, the one o'clock, a 12, 10 o'clock meeting for one hour, we walked out of there at 4 a.m. the next morning. And I called it my Saul to Paul mm-hmm. transformation. Yeah. And so I know it had to be a tremendous impact for you yeah. uh, to grow up and go to the same school. Yeah, yeah. And then end up standing in his pulpit. Yeah, I, I, I just wanted to attend the school that Martin Luther King Jr. attended. And um, I had no idea that I would later become the pastor of the church and stand in the pulpit where he served 
uh, alongside his dad from 1960 to 1968. While I was a student at Morehouse College, and I talk about this in the, in the book also, um, we had an event on campus, and I was president of the uh, students who work in the chapel, the chapel assistants they were called, at the Martin Luther King Jr. International Chapel uh, on the campus of Morehouse College. We invited uh, some of the uh, public officials in the community to come to this event. The only one who showed up was your friend John Lewis. John Lewis was probably in his first or second term in the Congress, and uh, that's when I met him. Uh, honestly, I don't remember what he said that night. He gave a speech at our event. It was a long time ago. But it was the ministry of his presence alone. The yeah. fact that he took the time to come spend time with us students. He spoke at our event, and then afterwards I remember him standing around and, and spending some time with us. I had no idea that later on I would become his pastor, uh, as I assumed the pastorate of, of Ebenezer Baptist Church. And it is his kind of courage, the courage of a John Lewis and uh, Amelia Boynton. Oh, yeah. One of the women. We don't, we don't lift, lift up those names nearly enough, but Amelia Boynton was gassed on that same Absolutely. bridge. I later met her. Uh, Hosea Williams, of, cross, of course, crossed that bridge with uh, John Lewis. Um, it is the faith of people like that who... Sure who really didn't have any reason to believe that they could win. Absolutely. Your generation, there was no, we talk, we look back at the civil rights movement, I think, and too often speak about these victories, the passage of the civil rights movement, uh, the voting rights law, fair housing, as if these were inevitable victories. They were improbable, quite improbable. Not just improbable, but one of the things I think is important that you point that out is that it's for people to understand, it didn't all happen in one fell swoop. Right. Uh, when I think about uh, the work trying to get the Civil Rights Act of 1964 passed, mm -hmm. and it, as the year said, it passed in 1964. Right. But when it passed, it didn't have voting in it, didn't have housing in it. Right. And really, the... Uh, part dealing with um, uh, employment discrimination only applied to the private sector, to the private sector. Didn't even apply to the public sector. And so when you look back on that, you got the Civil Rights Act in 64, Voting Rights Act in 65, Fair Housing Law in 68, and it did not apply to the public sector until 72. So over an eight-year period, all of this took place, and people look back on it as if it all happened in one fell swoop. Right. And so when I look at your book mm -hmm. and think about your journey, uh, that incremental, yeah. these incremental steps. Yeah. Sounds like you all didn't allow the perfect to be the enemy of the good. That's exactly right. And you, you, you kept moving with the recognition that the American story is such that there are moments when the democracy expands. And we broaden our view of what it means to be one nation under God, or e pluribus unum, out of many one. And then there are moments when it contracts. Absolutely. But, you know, it, maybe it's the preacher in, in me who, who remembers that even contractions are necessary for new birth and new possibility. And so you keep moving and you keep bending that arc through fits and starts. Um, and I'm a product of the work that you all did. Um, you know, I, um, I'm a Head Start alum. 
Oh yeah, uh, that's great. Which, you know that <laughs> I uh, did not know that. Uh, so I'm part. Uh, uh, me and and uh, Ben Ray Lujan are the two members of the of, of, the of what Senate. we call the Head Start Caucus of the United <laughs> States Senate. Well, that's great. That's great. You know, and I'm glad you pointed that out because you know, when you go back, and a lot of things did not happen back then, but you know, uh, when Lyndon Johnson came with his so-called Great Society program, yeah. and I don't have to tell you, we, you know, you a native of Georgia, sure. me of South Carolina, uh, we know the history of those states, and uh, the fact is that a lot of people talk about, even today, uh, that Lyndon Johnson's Great Society programs failed. Nothing could be further from no. the truth. The Great Society did not fail. Yeah. And you just mentioned Head Start. Yeah. Yeah. That was a Great Society program. Yeah. Yeah. And it's still going on today. Yeah. Yeah. You and yeah. another United States senator, yep. graduates of that, the new president of South Carolina State, was Head Start's poster child on this 50th anniversary. Right. And right. now he's president of the South Carolina State University. Right. Head Start did not fail. Right. And for folks who may not know, we should point out that Head Start is a program that ensures that poor children have access to learning and literacy in those critical years, you know, when you're three and four years old, when the brain is literally growing and the neurons are firing. And if you don't engage parts of the brain during that time, the science says that it atrophies. Like it's really part of how you change the world is you invest and young people, but particularly the very, very young. And uh, so along with my parents, it exposed me to reading and a, and a love for learning. And uh, I like to say to folks all the time when I'm giving speeches, particularly at an audience where there are all of these sophisticated folks who are there, people who have degrees and credentials and position, you know, I hate to share it with you, but as smart as you are, you'll never be as smart as you were when you were four years old. <laughs> that's that's where the real magic and power yeah, can happen. Yeah. Not that it can't happen in other places, but that that's an important uh, place to invest. I'm a Head Start alum, and then um, in high school, uh, I had a high school principal who uh, invited me to become a part of a program called Upward Bound, uh, which is part of a federal trio programs. It put a poor kid who grew up in public housing on a college campus. And if you can put a kid on a college campus, he or she can imagine themselves there. I spent my summers engaged in academic enrichment and my Saturdays on the campus of Savannah State University. And then when it came time to go to college, um, we didn't have the money. I often say I went to Morehouse on a full faith scholarship, which means I didn't have enough money for the first semester. But the other part of that story is Pell Grants, low-interest student loans. So I sit today in, in the United States Senate as a senator who knows the difference that good federal public policy can make. You know, uh, you and I have talked about the similarities in our backgrounds, both uh, uh, PKs, both going to what we call HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, uh, what I did not know is that uh, that TRIO program you just mentioned, yeah. Upward Bound, was number one, Talent Search. Talent Search. Number two, Ron Special Students Concern Program. Yep. Ron McNair was a Talent Search student. Right. I ran the Talent Search Program in South Carolina. Really? Absolutely. Wow. One of them. <laughs> I uh, did not know that. I didn't know that you were part of the TRIO program. Yep. But there's a pretty big TRIO caucus in the Congress in the as Congress, well. In the Congress, right. Especially on the House side. Right. A lot of my colleagues were in 
uh, one of the trio programs up with bound special student concerns. Right. Right. That's amazing. Right. But it's a testimony to why you are who and what you are. You know the benefit yeah. of these kinds of efforts, and that's why yeah. uh, you've been so uh, engaged in programs like yeah. what can we do yeah. uh, about student loan debt, yeah. what it's, we can do. Yeah. Uh, for instance, uh, I'm particularly interested in your work on the Senate side because I'm doing a little bit on the House side on uh, putting a ceiling on the cost of insulin yeah, and absolutely. what that means and what the federal government ought to be doing with that. Uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, priorities yeah. uh, in, the, sure. in the Senate. Well, you know, I've been focused on the work, particularly around health care, long before I even decided I would run for office. Uh, my track has been ministry, and my decision to run for the Senate and serve in the Senate is an extension of that work. So I've been fighting for health care for years, and right now I, I have a bill on the Senate side which would cap the cost of insulin to $35 of out-of-pocket expenses per person. But I want to remind uh, our viewers here today that you're working on getting that passed in the Senate. Oh, absolutely. We've already passed it in the House. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> and I'm doing everything I can to make sure we do our part. That's uh, and um, let's, you know, let's try to get this done. I, in Georgia, one in 12 people uh, in Georgia is a diabetic. One in 12. And in our country, one in four dollars spent in our health care system is on people with diabetes. So part of the power, I think, of this focus on insulin, which, by the way, is a 100-year-old drug that they're price gouging. Absolutely. Right? But if you think about one in four dollars in our health care system being spent on someone with diabetes, and you think about the cascading impact of diabetes when it's not managed or the things that can happen, um, dialysis, uh, kidney failure, needing to go on dialysis, amputations. Um, a doctor shared with me that the number one cause of blindness is diabetes. Yeah. So it makes sense for the people that we're trying to help, but it makes sense for our overall health ecosystem. One reason I want to get there before uh, dealing with your ministry, you know, uh, I came along th thinking I was going to follow my father into the ministry, and uh, we talked about it a lot, and I was going to go to South Carolina State for four years, and then I was going on uh, down to the seminary. seminary. I looked at Atlanta in a nominational uh, seminary. You know, I, yeah, ITC. I grew up on, yeah, on state campus where uh, Benny Mays finished high school mm -hmm. on that campus. So mm -hmm. I had all of these things going on in my head, but I always heard you had to be called to the ministry. Right. And uh, I kept listening. <laughs> I never heard the you call. You didn't hear the call. <laughs> so I went over to tell my dad. And my dad said to me, well, son, he said, I suspect the world would much rather see a sermon mm -hmm. than to hear one. And that defines what the church, what the, the black church really means in the black community. And so I wanted you to talk about your efforts in health care because I wanted you to share Mm -hmm. uh, what it's like to stand in the pulpit looking at a congregation and you know sure. that, as you said, one in 12 sitting out there has yeah. got diabetes, yeah. uh, needs uh, this help. Yeah. My late wife, 
lost a 25-year battle to diabetes mm. two and a half years, uh, years ago. Four shots a day right. of insulin. Right. Uh, and uh, I saw what that cost was, $800 to $1,200 a month for a drug that's been around for 100 years. 100 years. And they can make money if it's only $35 a month. That defines your ministry. Yeah. No, it's the work that I've tried to do for a long time, long before I entered the Senate. Um, and I do look at it through the lens of a pastor because I've been with families as they've wrestled with the, the, the kind of struggle that you describe and that you know very personally and intimately. Um, it's the reason why I've been fighting since 2014 to get Georgia to expand Medicaid. Of course, South Carolina is another state another that keeps state. refusing to expand Medicaid as politicians are playing a game focused on the battles of 10 years ago. Uh, and so, you know, I've gotten arrested in an act of civil disobedience, again, informed by that movement um, in the state capitol down in Georgia, fighting for Medicaid expansion. I came to the United States capitol back I in 2017. Yeah. Yeah. You and I talked that day. <laughs> Later that day, I got arrested <laughs> standing up, trying to trying to fight for Medicaid expansion. Absolutely. They were cutting resources from the Children's Health Care Program. Absolutely. And uh, I was here along with the Reverend Dr. William Barber and some yeah. others. And uh, uh, Barber told me it was my turn to get arrested. That <laughs> <day>. <laughs> so, well, I'll tell you, it worked pretty good. It worked pretty good. You know, so, the first time I got arrested uh, is when I, I met my wife. I was oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> what a date. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But whatever it was, sometimes jail worked, I guess. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. He stayed married 58 yeah. years, and uh, that was great. Uh, uh, but I remember the day that you got arrested, and I remember yeah. what the issue was. We were all. Yeah. Uh, fighting for yeah. children's so, chip, chip. Yeah, and now my office is down the hall <laughs> from the rotunda where I got arrested. Absolutely. And the Capitol Police, who were very kind and polite and professional that day, who were doing their job, had to take me to Central Booking that mm-hmm. day. Uh, nowadays, they help me when it's time for me to get to my office or get yeah. to the to the Capitol. And you know that's what I mean when I say a way out of nowhere. Sure. That um um. The, the journey, the, the work that we're trying to do, the progress, it comes in fits and starts. Yeah. The democracy expands and it contracts. But America is a great nation because there always have been people who are willing to lay it all on the line uh, for the country. You know, my dad was like that, and I, I talk about him a lot. Um, and it's because he had such an amazing impact on me. He He was a preacher, but... Not with the credentials that I've been able to gain because of his sacrifice for me. Um, my dad, uh, born in 1917, uh, was an old had an older father, and um, he uh, uh, served in uh, during the World War II era all stateside for about a year, and uh, he used to talk about how he was uh, on a bus and was asked to give up his seat while in his army uniform uh, to a white teenager. And he obliged, but he never forgot. Um, but the thing that was remarkable about him is he would tell that story, but he never, he never allowed anger or bitterness to overwhelm him. It deepened his resolve. 
uh, he's a part of, of a generation that loved America until America learned how to love him back. And it, it is his patriotism, his, his dream of a country that would uh, embrace his children uh, that inspires me to this, to this moment. My mother, much younger than my dad, grew up in Waycross, Georgia. Mm -hmm. And as I say sometimes, uh, uh, the 82-year-old hands that used to pick somebody else's cotton and tobacco picked her youngest son to be a United States senator. That, that, is, that is the great and wonderfully complicated story, the family history of America. America, like all families, has a complicated history. Absolutely, absolutely. Right? And you know, really, you and I are going to have to talk even some more because you just said something about your dad. Uh, my father was 19 years older than my mother. And mine was tw <laughs> 21. <laughs> you know, and, uh, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and my dad had the yeah. same kind of demeanor about him. Yeah. Uh, he with uh, a lot of indignities uh, that I saw him yeah. absolve so that uh, I could be where I am today. Yeah. Uh, I think about that a lot, and I'm sure you do uh, as well. Uh, one of the things I wanted to to mentioned here, you mentioned your father in uniform when that incident occurred. Yes. Uh, a gentleman named Isaac Woodard getting out of the military uh, being discharged in Georgia, coming home to South Carolina in uniform and was dragged off a bus and his eyes punched out. Uh, he died a blind man. Mm. But because of that incident, Harry Truman President of the United States and saw that, heard about it. It's what caused him to write that uh, executive order that integrated the armed services. Mm -hmm. Armed services, yeah. a lot of people don't realize, the armed services were never integrated by the Congress. Right. It was the president the signing an executive order that integrated the armed services. Yeah. Uh, the Congress came along later. Uh, but these kinds of incidents, Georgia, South Carolina, uh, we got a whole lot more yeah. in common than we uh, uh, even know about to this yeah. day. But the other thing we got in common, John Lewis. He was my man. Yeah, he was my John man. Lewis. Uh, and you were his pastor. Yeah. Tell me how that yeah. was. It, was. it was a real honor to, to serve John Lewis. Um, as I said, I met him when I was a, a college student, and later when I became the pastor of Ebenezer Church, um, uh, I became his pastor. And... Some of my earliest memories are serving not only him, but his wife, uh, yeah. who was quite ill by the time I came to Ebenezer Church. So I did a number of pastoral visits uh, with Lillian Lewis, who was mm -hmm. a strong and indomitable oh, yeah. spirit in her own right. And um, uh, later, uh, you know, from time to time, would spend some time with him. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I as I was preparing to preside over his funeral, which uh, happened while I was running for the Senate. Oh, I remember. I was sitting there yeah. watching you. I, I remember asking, I, I asked myself as I was thinking about John Lewis, what was he thinking when he was crossing that Edmund Pettus Bridge with nothing but a backpack on trench coat? Trench coat. Um, I don't know, but here's what I, I, I do know. I, I know he was not thinking that at my death there would be three American presidents at his funeral, 
on both sides of the aisle Absolutely. because they, we all respected John Lewis. He was not thinking that one day he would be the recipient of a Presidential Medal of Freedom. I think he was just trying to stay alive that day mm-hmm. so he could fight the next day. Absolutely. And yet by some stroke of destiny mingled with courage and human determination, uh, he built the bridge that became a bridge to the future. He bent the arc a little bit closer uh, to justice. And so when I think about him in relationship to these difficult times that we're going through and the forces of division that are emerging and speak with a kind of full-throated, unembarrassed uh, audacity. Uh, we can't afford to give up. Who, who am I to give up having known John Lewis? Right. Um, he didn't have any reason to keep fighting, but he kept fighting a good fight, told us to stay into some good trouble. Mm-hmm. And um, that's the work I try to do even now as a legislator. I'm, I'm, in the, I'm in the Congress, I'm in the Senate, but it is the spirit of, of the movement and, and a faith that has always centered justice and compassion and mercy and beloved community uh, that guides my work. I'm glad you mentioned Lillian, you know, John's uh, wife, Lillian. Um, John and I often talked about our lives, uh, both professional librarians. Uh, Lillian and Emily were professional librarians, and they got to be great friends. And you and I were a part of the launching of their foundation in their right. honor. Uh, several weeks ago, and I think it's just so fitting and proper for uh, everybody to really remember. You know, John Lewis was a little bit different from from me anyway. Uh, you may have internalized a lot of what he did. Uh, we practice uh, nonviolence. Uh, John internalized nonviolence. I'm, I don't know if I could ever become what John <laughs> Lewis was, but watching him and having to lobby him for a vote, becoming his whip. Mm. And uh, the whip's job is to uh, get the 218 if you're on the House side. And, uh, you go to John, he, he kind of knew from the content of the legislation, well, not even talk to John about that, uh, because certain mm-hmm. things about him, he was really as close to a pacifist, pacifist. as anybody I've ever met. Uh, and so uh, when it came to war and peace, John was always... Uh, on the side of peace. Uh, I don't think he ever voted for but one defense bill the whole time I served with him uh, because there was always something there that he thought did not lead to peace. Uh, So it must have been a great experience uh, to be his pastor. It was. But let me ask you a little bit about going forward. Uh, You and I have talked about uh, the past. You know, I often quote uh, George Santiano who said, if we fail to learn the lessons of the past, we're bound to repeat them. Uh, do you think uh, we've learned uh, those past lessons sufficient enough for us to overcome the current divisions that we currently see in the country? Well, I certainly hope so. Um, but it's, we have to remain vigilant. And um, we have to, um, I think, anchor ourselves in, in the story of of folks who've always fought the good fight. And um, I think we have to be willing to, to, to stretch ourselves to, to, to create unlikely alliances in order to do good work. You know, one of the things that we got done in this Congress 
was the passage of the bipartisan infrastructure bill. I mention that because that, that may seem a little odd that I'd bring that up, but but for me, infrastructure is about more than just bricks and mortar. Absolutely. It's more than roads and bridges. It's, it's that to be sure. It's more than broadband. It's really about the spirit of the country. It is about the recognition that there, that there are some things and there are some spaces that we have to share. That, that's our shared um, house, the house we live in. And if you think about how broken the infrastructure of our country has been and for how long uh, in the wealthiest country on the planet, I think our broken infrastructure is a reflection of the brokenness of our politics, that there's a, a breakdown, a lack of attention to the covenant we have with one another as an American people for our schools to be crumbling, uh, for us not to have uh, the high-speed rail and the kinds of things that we ought to be in, in embracing. And so um, I, I think, and I've seen this as a pastor, that sometimes when a family is struggling and you're having conflict in your family, and all families do, you, you can't always solve the problem. You can sit here and argue about this issue or that issue forever. Or sometimes the best thing you can do while you're working through those issues, rather than working on each other, find something to work on together. Yeah. To, to, yeah. to, to dream, to build. And while you're building and working and perfecting the space that you share together, I think that at least provides a context uh, to work through some of these fault lines of division that certain folks are trying to stir up right now. And so when we passed the bipartisan infrastructure bill, uh, a strange thing happened that I, I never would have predicted. Uh, it's called the Cruz-Warnock Amendment. Uh, Ted Cruz, that is. Mm -hmm. uh, Ted Cruz and I disagree on many, many things, <laughs> uh, uh, to be sure. Um, but he and I both are on the Commerce Committee uh, of the Senate. And as it turns out, he had something that he wanted to get done that I also wanted to get done. And um, the night we passed a bipartisan infrastructure bill, we had to do it as an amendment. Couldn't do it in, in committee. And he stood up and made his argument for why he thought this should happen. And then I stood up and made my argument, and I heard myself say words that I'd never thought I'd hear myself say something along the order of, I, I agree <laughs> <laughs> with the senator from Texas. Yeah. And sure. uh, the, the chamber burst out in laughter, all of our colleagues, and they passed it overwhelmingly. Sure. And Twitter began to fire up, and folks on my side, and I suspect on his side, my staff was showing me what was going on on Twitter. Folks were asking, well, what is this? What is this Cruz-Warnock amendment? How could you stand with him? It's very, very simple. I-14, an interstate he wants to see built out in Texas, wanted, wants to see it named a priority corridor so we could get the resources to build it out. That interstate that runs through Texas also runs through Georgia. Absolutely. It connects blue and red communities, uh, chocolate cities, and vanilla suburbs. It transcends race, class, all of the things that we think divide us. And if we can get that highway built out, all kinds of folks can get on the highway to get to where they need to go. Absolutely. When you think about that, the interstate I-95, yeah. Maine to Miami. Yeah. How many states is yeah. it across? Yeah. Bringing all these communities together. Yeah. When you start talking about the I-95 yeah. corridor, uh, it's defined by what state you're yeah. in. 
Yeah. And so it's kind but of I mean, interesting yeah, to talk about. Yeah, yeah. and in, in a larger sense, there's the, my point is that there's a highway that runs through our humanity well, that's it, larger I, than race, that's it's, larger it's, than It's right in our motto. Politics. And you mentioned it earlier. E plurus, plurus unum. Yeah. Other men and one. Many one. How do you do that? Yeah. That's how you do it. Yeah. Getting people together. It's an infrastructure uh, that we don't usually think about, but it's really there. I want you to share with us a little bit um, this book, uh, the, the title. You know, I often think one of my favorite scriptures is uh, Hebrew 11 1. Uh, faith. faith. Substance of things hoped for. Right. The evidence of things not seen. Now, you and I are operating on a lot of faith these days. <laughs> 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 because uh, some things that we are hoping for uh, that we uh, we don't see yet. Uh, you over in the Senate, uh, and a lot of us will rely upon what happens in the Senate. Tell me a little bit about your hope uh, for some of us that, uh, that we still yeah. have not seen evidence yeah. of. Well, we got we've we've gotten some things done this Congress, and I think it's important to point that out. We passed the American Rescue Plan, which helped us to get um, this virus under control, so we could reopen the economy. We supported municipal government, cities, and states, so they didn't have to lay off uh, municipal workers and firefighters and police officers. Uh, that bill provided resources so our schools could reopen safely and be retrofitted in response to the pandemic. We help farmers, and in that bill, we passed the single largest tax cut for middle and working class families in American history. Uh, I had hoped we would extend it, the expanded child tax credit, but we did pass it. And we went on from there, passed the bipartisan infrastructure bill. And now we're working on the jobs and competition bill, which uh, would help ensure that uh, America remains competitive Absolutely. and continues to lead well into the 21st century. And we need all of our talent in order to do that. So it invests in um, high tech hubs and in colleges and universities and research and development. Um, but in spite of all of that, pe- people are in pain. There are. They're and struggling. people are looking to us and you know, but you know, the glass half full. And requires that we focus sometimes yeah. on the things to do to continue filling up the glass. Yeah. Uh, and if you stay so preoccupied with that part of the yeah. glass that's uh, is still empty, uh, we'll lose the ability, the energy, and everything else to require to continue filling yeah. it up. Yeah. And so I'm glad you mentioned those things we passed. You did not mention the omnibus uh, appropriation bill. Yeah. That was huge. Yeah. Uh, one of the uh, Earliest times I've seen that happen since I've been here, and a yeah. uh, very good time. And we're still working, yeah. uh, as you mentioned, yeah. alluded to the compete yeah. side. Yeah. So what keeps me up at night right now is I'm I'm thinking about the the pressures that ordinary families are feeling. Uh, they go to the gas pump, they see uh, record prices, but oil and gas companies are experiencing record profits. So we've got to deal with this price gouging the ways in which also Putin's wars certainly not helping with, with pressures around that. So, you know, one of the things that I'd like to see us do is pass a uh, federal gas tax suspension as we make our way through, through these difficult times. Uh, I'd like to see us cap the cost of prescription drugs, uh, 
get the bill across the finish line on the Senate side to get <laughs> the cost of insulin uh, capped and um, uh, continue to invest in, in the future for all of our children. Well, we just passed uh, the Senate. I don't know when this is going to be seen by the public, but today, as you were taping this program, just about two hours ago, the House passed a pretty significant piece of legislation that will lower the cost of fuel and food. Right. Uh, we're going to send it over there to the Senate. <laughs> they said they said it's the cooling bowl, but sometimes it's the place where things can unfortunately die. But I, I'm going to be doing everything I can well, and centering the concerns of ordinary people. But I think you just mentioned something that I think the public is you know, a lot about inflation. This inflation is worldwide. Uh, That's right. It's five dollars cool. a, ga- a gallon in some places here. It's over six and eight. In some other countries, uh, this is a worldwide inflationary spiral that um, the entire world is working to get under control. But there are some things that we do have control over. Sure. And that is whether or not we will allow uh, the price gouging that's taking place to right. continue uh, to flourish. Right. And so much of this cost uh, that the public is suffering through has got nothing to do uh, with this administration or any other Congress. Yeah. It's got yeah. a lot to do yeah. uh, with whether or not um, everybody in the private as well as the public sector will step up and do what's necessary to, to bring things under control. And I'm glad you, you mentioned that. But we came in to talk about your book. We've gotten away from it, but you know, a way out of nowhere. That's what all this is about. Absolutely. This has been my life's work. Absolutely. And your life's work. Absolutely. And uh, I'm deeply honored to be able to do it mm-hmm. on behalf of the people of Georgia. Well, let's talk about uh, a little bit going forward. Um, I think that you are so much of what the future of this great country is all about. You are uh, in a pretty spirited campaign for uh, for full term. You fill, you're filling out a term uh, which means you got to work for, you're running out for the full term. Mm. And I know a little bit about what that's like, uh, and I uh, don't, won't get into any kind of policy and politics here, but I think that what we, uh, or is important to share with people exactly a little bit more about you today. Uh, We know from whence you come, but what's your vision? Uh, for Georgia's future, your vision for this country's future, yeah. and the world. Yeah, when 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 you see me, you see someone who knows personally the difference that good federal public policy makes. As I said, I'm a, an alum of Head Start, upward bound, low interest student loans. Uh, I'd like to see, uh, and I've been pushing to get the president uh, to do. Uh, meaningful student debt cancellation. I was on a plane the other day, uh, actually during the holidays, coming back to Georgia, and there was a young couple a few rows ahead of me, and they had their young son with them, with them, looked like he was about a year old or so. And they waited for me as we were getting off the plane. First they asked for my autograph, which is still a strange thing to me. You know, I don't, <laughs> I don't think about myself in those terms. Mm-hmm. And then the mother handed me an airline ticket and she had written a note on it. And she said, we're big supporters of yours. We're glad you won and um, 
I only have one ask. She said, could you please do something about student debt? She went on to say in that little note that I kept, and every now and then I look at it, uh, she said that she she borrowed $35,000 trying to get through, getting through college to make her life better. And um, borrowed 35000 She's a college graduate. She has spent, uh, paid back 20000 of the 35000 and she still owes 30000 She said, I feel like I'm in a government-sanctioned loan debt um, or, or debt trap. So, you know, a, a lot has happened since even in the 30-some years since I graduated from college. Uh, too many of our young people now have a mortgage before they even get a mortgage. Mm-hmm. Student loan debt has surpassed credit card debt in our country. It has surpassed automobile loans in our country. That has huge implications. When, when young people in their 20s and 30s and 40s are weighed down with that kind of debt, uh, it makes it very difficult to buy a home. You're not very likely to start a business because you've got this, you're shackled by this thing. So we've got to get control over the cost of college, which has outpaced inflation significantly for a long time now. And we've got to deal with the fact that over the last 30 years or so, state governments have shifted this burden of getting a a college education to families, and they're borrowing this money. And so there are larger structural issues that need to be addressed, to be sure. But in the meantime, I'd I'd love to see uh, the president uh, give people some some relief, do some student debt cancellation. He's been good on this in terms of of the uh, pause that was put on payment. On payment, yeah. Um, But I'd, I'd like to see us do that. I'd like to see us cap the cost of prescription drugs, get uh, cap the cost of insulin, and um, I'd like to see us in, invest in the future, which is what this jobs and competition bill that we're working on right now is all about. And that's another thing I want us to begin thinking about, and I'll just raise it here today because of the history of it. I'm surprised the number of people who don't realize this. I think that what's really, really important going forward is uh, this thing we call Social Security. Yeah. Uh, already, I saw, uh, let's just say, a member of the Senate uh, now putting forth the notion uh, that uh, Social Security law may be sunsetted uh, after five years. Um, what is that about? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think few people realize that when Social Security first came online back in 1935, uh, it did not cover uh, people who worked on farm workers. It did not cover domestic workers. And 65% of black people in this country were in those two uh, fields of employment. So Social Security didn't even apply to them. Now, over time, we've brought all these people under Social Security. Now we hear and talk about maybe Social Security is not a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure uh, that uh, that is something we need to start a discussion about. What do we need to do to show up and make Social Security uh, a thing that would be guaranteed for the future of our children, our grandchildren? Because a lot of people are working in jobs that uh, will not allow them uh, to have 
what do we call it? Not five, but what do we call these yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, things that I don't know uh, a whole lot about? I'm not a stock market person. I just kind of uh, look for my Social Security yeah. uh, time <laughs> to take care of me. But Social Security, I think, has got to be a big thing we've got to start yeah. thinking about. Yeah, well, we have to honor um, our mother and our father. Absolutely. The scripture says so that our days will be long upon the earth. And um, we've got to protect our seniors. And we also have to honor the pact that we have with our veterans. Absolutely. Uh, Georgia's a big veteran state. Uh, one in ten people in our state uh, is a, attached in some way to the military. And we have seen a new generation of veterans, post-911 veterans, who uh, have been exposed, uh, who've had toxic exposure in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in other places, and they've had a hard time getting the benefits that they need as a result of their service. So they literally go abroad, fight for us, and then come back home and have to fight with us to get the health benefits that they deserve. So I'm glad that uh, we uh, have now uh, moved forward with mm -hmm. uh, getting honoring our pact uh, across the finish line, and that's going to make a huge difference for about 3.5 million veterans. Absolutely. Uh, we owe it to the veterans. We owe it to our seniors. People living in their golden years ought to be free of some of the anxieties that they're currently uh, carrying. And I, I do know that it may be important for us to stay focused on making a way out of nowhere, but uh, sometimes you've got to have time yep. for that. And a lot of our elders don't have the time that you and I have. Well, maybe, I don't have the time that you've got. Uh, <laughs> You're looking pretty good, sir. <laughs> I feel okay, but uh, the fact remains, um, uh, I know uh, that there's so much that needs to be done. And once again, I think uh, the scripture says, uh, uh, we call the elderly because... Oh, old man, I call you, a young man, I call you because you're strong. The old, I call you because you know the way. You know the way. Yeah. And so there's got to be this kind of a balance, I think, yeah. going forward. Those sure. who know the way have got to be able to rely upon those of you who sure. are much stronger and those of you who are so strong uh, should benefit from those who may know the way. But all that is what this book is all about. Yeah. All that is what uh, living uh, your faith yeah. is all about. I, I say all the time, you know, uh, Faith means so much, yeah. uh, not just uh, uh, in the black church, but it means so much in, in the American way. Sure. Uh, that's what the democracy is all about, right. uh, having faith in each other, dependent upon each other to keep this country strong, making it, leaving it better than what we found it. These things are so important, yeah. Yeah. and they aren't just slogans. They are uh, what we should be doing for our children and our grandchildren. Uh, if, if, if I were to ask you to uh, just uh, tell us in political terms, now I, I, I know uh, what, the, uh, what the future holds. Uh, what would you advise young people today uh, about the future, some of whom are wondering whether uh, there is going to be anything for them to come along? What would you say to a, a youngster yeah. growing up, in public housing, uh, dreaming about whether or not uh, they will be able to uh, go off to higher education. And I say that because I, I go beyond college. Uh, you know, I think it's very important 
for electricians and Absolutely. plumbers and everybody else. Vocational and community college. Absolutely. Absolutely. What would you say to a young person? Uh, you know, uh, there was a great graduate of, of, of Morehouse College named Howard Thurman. Oh, great thinker. Absolutely. And uh, Howard Thurman said, ask not what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. And so I would encourage a young person uh, who uh, has seen your story, heard my story, um, to connect to that thing that gives you passion and, com- and the thing you would do even if you weren't paid except that you got to make a living. Um, but that thing that captures your imagination, um, uh, if you can connect with that and then prepare yourself and perfect your craft, whatever that is, um, you'll find a place and you'll find people who will help you along the way. I've been incredibly blessed. Um, I grew up in a family where we were short on money but long on faith. Long on hope and a lot of laughter in my family. That's great. I think part of part of this journey is not taking yourself too seriously, even though we're living through serious times. And um, it has served me well. And I'm deeply honored to represent the people of Georgia and the United States Senate. It's difficult, uh, but one of the scriptures that continues to inform my journey is is the Gospel of John, where it says, "The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness overcometh it not." The times are difficult, mm-hmm. but there there is a way to penetrate the darkness. And uh, I would hope that each of us in our own way would try to be that light. Well, I'm glad you mentioned uh, two things. Number one, finding something to do for which you're not paid. I have three grown daughters, and I've said to them over and over again, I don't care what jobs you get, you're supposed to earn your pay, but I want you to find something to do for which you're not paid. And that's where the rewards come. One of whom, of course, went down to Georgia uh, during the campaign, uh, your campaign, uh, and worked. Uh, I'm and grateful. She feels so, <laughs> uh, feels so good about that, yeah. uh, good about that. Yeah. She just feels that, uh, uh, but for that time she spent on your campaign, you might not have gotten elected. <laughs> but that's what it's all it about. But I want to thank you for that. But the other thing is this, never give up. That's right. Uh, I lost three times before I got elected. Mm. And a friend of mine said to me, what you going to do now? You know what they say, three stacks stacks in your eye. And I said, that's a baseball rule. Mm-hmm. Nobody should live their lives by baseball rules. So I would say to young people today, just remember, no matter how many times you try, the next time just may be the time. So never give up this fight. And thank you. Thank you. For not allowing uh, the life that you started with. Uh, be a burden but an incentive uh, to put you where you are today Uh, because I'm convinced that we are guided by our experiences Uh, and those experiences that you've had growing up in public housing, uh, struggling to get through college and going on to get a terminal degree and now sit in one of the most famous pulpits uh, in America and serving under the great dome of these United States of America as a United States Senator, the first, and this is the first time I've said this, African-American to represent uh, the state of Georgia in the United States Senate ever. All of that is because you kept the faith. 
a way out of no way. Absolutely. You made a way yeah. out of no way. Thank you for that. Thank you.